Acheron, The Demon King, by Morgan Huxley. Find more great stories at audioiron.com. Chapter 11 When Stuart arrived the next morning, Mary was recording a week's worth of ideas and impressions in her book of shadows. Her tarot cards were spread on a white scarf before her and she was sketching some of the faces into her book. Next to her, her cell phone was displaying photographs she had taken of the masks she had made. She was trying to create a record of how closely the masks matched the images in her cards. Stuart let himself in the kitchen door without knocking. Today he was dressed like a professor in grey slacks, starched shirt, red tie and a grey sweater. His grey eyes glittered as he looked at her work. You're going to need a second volume, he said at last. How have you filled so many pages? Is that allowed? She asked as she handed him the book. I've never kept a diary before. I can't imagine doing it without pictures. He nodded, thumbing through the pages. I see Acheron appears regularly, he said as he handed it back to her. The devil you mean? She flipped to a full-page sketch of her mask. It exactly matched the one in her cards. Acheron? Is that his name? The Dark Lord has been assigned quite a number of names over the centuries, Stuart said, slipping into the chair across from her. Acheron is what we call him. Not Satan? she asked. No, never Satan he said. Already we are off on a track I don't want to go down. Why not call him who he is? she asked. You don't have to lie to me. He stared at her for a moment, then sighed as if facing a particularly obtuse student. Acheron has more in common with that Baron Samadhi fellow you mentioned than the ill-defined fictional character you are talking about, said Stuart. Acheron is mate to Our Lady. Light and dark, good and evil. Stop, he said. Is a mother good, and a father evil? Is earth good and air bad? It's convenient to think in black and white, but we live in color. Are you trying to protect me? she asked. If I have sold my soul to the devil, I can accept that. It has been going pretty well for me so far. Stuart shook his head in surrender and stood up. Well, he said. Think whatever you like. As long as you are happy. I've never felt better, said Mary. He put his hands in his pockets and studied her for a long moment. James, Ahmed, and I will be back this afternoon to continue our training. I'll see you then, she said. I'll be out until two. I am shipping out masks today. Fine he said. He waited for a moment as if deciding whether or not he wanted to say something more, then shrugged and ambled out of the house. True to her word Mary did ship off all the masks, wrapping each in paper and burying them in straw to protect them from the bumps and bangs of transport. She had just returned from dropping them off at the shipping company when her three instructors came back. Once again, she sat in her sitting room, took the medicine they gave her, and woke up hours later. This time she declined dinner preferring a long bath and silence to their company. David called as she was closing her eyes. Hi. She heard him say when she picked up the phone. He sounded much happier than he had on his last call. I'm glad you are awake. I'm very happy you called, she replied sleepily. I miss you. As she said it, she realized it wasn't true. A pang of guilt shot through her. She had three men dancing attendance on her, giving her gifts, and supporting her out. One day soon that might be over, and then it would be just she and David again. Could she stand that? Work is going well. It's getting easier now. My assistant is really great, 
David told her. I knew it would get better, she responded. She wondered what his assistant looked like. Clearly she was pretty because David had said almost nothing about her. I wired money into our joint bank account today, he said. You should have more than enough to pay all the bills. Good, she said. I made some extra money too. I just sent off masks to America today. I'm glad, he said. Look, I have to go. They are taking me to dinner, but I'll call again as soon as I can. I understand, she said with relief. It's just business, but I really do have to go. I know, she replied. Did he sound guilty? I love you, he said firmly. Of course you do, she replied. And I love you too. And then he was gone and she found herself holding the phone and staring at the ceiling of her bedroom. Was her life better with David gone? She didn't want to believe that. But she could never have worked with Stuart and the society with David around. He would not have tolerated being completely excluded from all their activities. He would have been jealous and he would have needled her endlessly. That night she dreamed. She was back in the tunnels, wandering in their dark, cold depths. She was searching desperately for the stairway up. She finally found a tunnel that led up into the sky. It was surrounded by a pool of warm water. Looking around she could see she was standing in a sparkling grotto. The sea water she stood in was slightly luminous, and looking down into it she could see the moon. I found you, she heard someone say. She turned to see Stuart behind her. He was dressed in his thick black robe. Its lower edge swept through the still water. She felt him come behind her, and she turned to face him. His robe was soft, his embrace warm. You belong to me, she heard him say, you have always been mine. She knew, as she heard the words, that they were true. He bent down to touch her lips with his. His kiss deepened, his hands followed the curve of her back, then they strayed lower. She woke up breathing hard, gasping with desire. The room was dark and empty, but no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't banish the feeling of holding Stuart in her arms, the sense of being pressed against his hard body. She tried to remember what passion with David felt like. She loved him. She knew that. But she wanted Stuart. He was impossibly wealthy, and apparently entirely disinterested in her as a woman. He was yet another thing in this difficult world she could not have. As her lessons continued in the following week, they were made somewhat less comfortable by a heightened awareness of Stuart as a man. She couldn't help noticing that he was confident, intelligent, and attractive. She couldn't ignore the scent of his skin, the fact that he always seemed one step ahead of her, or that he seemed to know her better than she knew herself. She took special care to devote as much attention to Ahmed and James as she did to Stuart, though it became harder day by day. Since Stuart's manner never varied, she assumed she was successful in her effort to keep her feelings to herself. He treated her like one of his students she supposed, a slightly ill-prepared and flighty girl, of interest only insofar as she must be helped through her lessons. Her dreams about Stuart became more and more explicit, twice causing her to get up in the middle of the night to take a cold shower. She'd never experienced such intense desire in dreams. Like a lover, they demanded more and more from her each night. She was embarrassed by their detail and the clarity of their erotic images and sensations. She began to wonder if she was going mad, or if, perhaps, Stuart had enchanted her. One by one Stuart's predictions regarding her friends had come true. Jane called to tell Mary that an aunt had given her many thousands of pounds as a gift for the baby, and her husband had also received a small promotion. 
Elizabeth called to say she was going to China on her honeymoon. She'd sold her first story to a U.S. magazine. Lillian called to confess she was pregnant and was overjoyed at the prospect of a child. She had thought herself too old to conceive and she was wonderfully surprised that she was wrong. Mary heard nothing from Margaret, but she hoped that too was due to good news. Mary has become a very obliging initiate, said Ahmed. It was early evening on the ninth day of instruction. They were speaking outside under a starry sky. From Mary's gravel drive they could see her upstairs window where she was going to bed. They watched the light go out. Amazing what a little infatuation will do, said Stuart Riley, not to mention the drugs you are giving her, the isolation she lives in, or the fact that she was conceived to play exactly this role at this time. Maybe things will go smoothly after all, said James. I think she has several screws loose and she's going to be quite a handful, said Stuart. One minute magic doesn't exist, the next she's sold her soul to the devil. There is not one minute, ever, in which she is really interested in hearing what I need to tell her. Perhaps this is just her nature. Perhaps it is a by-product of her misspent years in an orphanage. In any case, I don't expect an easy road going forward. But you are confident she'll play her part? Asked James with real concern. She will do what she must do, said Stuart. There is no other alternative. Ahmed said, I hope it's easier than you make it sound. Stuart envied Ahmed the luxury of hope. Mary could be quite exasperating, but she was also beautiful, charming, and creative. There wasn't a mean bone in the girl's body. Stuart had enjoyed relationships with many women, never allowing any to become very serious due to the purpose he knew he would have to serve. He was, of course, fully aware that Mary desired him. It was in every word she said and every look she gave him. She expressed it in where she sat, how she moved around him, and how carefully she avoided touching him. To do what he had to do, he had to be a high priest, not a man. His duty was to make the girl fulfill her purpose, and that obligation meant he could allow himself to feel nothing for her at all. Voice recording and story copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music created by D. Kurtzman and licensed from Pond5. Find more great stories at audioiron.com.